0: Welcome to CyberCast, Decoding Today's Cyber Issues. I'm your host, Kate Macri. This special episode looks back on our Cyberscape National Security virtual event. The event featured notable cyber leaders across public and private sectors, including the nation's new National Cyber Director, Chris Inglis. The state of federal cybersecurity is a national security concern for the Biden administration. Malicious emails are up 600% due to COVID-19, and experts estimate there is a ransomware attack every 11 seconds in 2021, according to a data security and analytics firm, Veronis. In 2021 alone, the largest ransomware payout was $400 million, according to Business Insider. Federal agencies are especially vulnerable, according to the U.S. Government Accountability Office Director of IT and Cybersecurity, Jennifer Franks, in a recent Cybercast interview with government CIO Media and Research. Cyberattacks are also hitting bigger, more critical targets, as we saw with the December 2020 SolarWinds software supply chain breach, and then the May 2021 Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. These attacks affected civilian federal agencies and critical infrastructure sectors, leading President Joe Biden to sign the executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity. At our national security event, federal cyber leaders discussed the cyber executive order, their cyber priorities this year, and how to protect critical infrastructure from ransomware. Starting off the event, National Cyber Director Chris Inglis said he wants to focus on the integration of cyber defense and cyber offense during his tenure.
1: For the moment, we're somewhere between tactical and strategic in our consideration of ransomware, um, which I think is, while it's the scourge of the moment and it's widespread and we need to do something about it, um, I think it actually reflects some deeper concerns that we all have to have about the nature of cyberspace at the moment. Um, I don't think that we have sufficient resilience in the technology or the people or the doctrine, meaning roles and responsibilities. Um, we're not joined up in a way that we force adversaries to beat all of us, to beat one of us, um, and we're not aligning actions to consequences in the way that we should. There should be rewards for good behavior and there should be penalties for bad behavior. When you add all of those up, that creates a situation where aggressors, whether they're criminals or nation states, in the ransomware world, sometimes they're both. It um, turns out that they can take advantage of us because they find the seams or the weaknesses um, in any of those dimensions and um, they race across that space in between. Um, so we need to take all of those on. There are sometimes calls that say that we should you know, simply double down on imposing consequences. That's an important piece of the whole. Um, but if we don't take care of the defense, if we don't care of the take care of the proactive um, defensive defensible architecture, um, then I think any amount of trying to shoot our way out of this will find up will wind up uh, being insufficient. So, so what I am concerned about, and I think I joined a number of others who are similarly concerned about, is how do we make use of all of those pieces? How do we bring them together such that they complement one another with a focus on integration and collaboration as opposed to the strengthening of any one of its
0: parts. Inglis wants to achieve what he calls cyber synthesis between the public and private sectors he wants to guide this synthesis in a complementary role. The private sector will be key because federal cybersecurity relies so much on private industry innovation.
1: Well, they're essential, I think. Um, I think we all know that 85 90% that's a figure of merit, but it's probably close 85 90% of what happens in cyberspace is innovated, developed, deployed, operated by the private sector. Um, to include critical functions, um, and, and those critical functions are things that the government has an interest and a responsibility to ensure that on behalf of its citizens are done and done well. Um, but if it's the private sector that's delivering them, in, in some cases, the private sector will be the supported um, kind of organization, and the government will be the support team organization, making sure that we're delivering to the private sector that which we must to ensure their success in operating and delivering those critical services. Having said that, there's responsibility on both sides of that relationship. Private sector is going to have to um, imbue the digital infrastructure with sufficient, resilience and robustness that it's a harder target. Um, it'll never be made perfectly secure. Um, that, that's, uh, that's not something that's possible in this very dynamic world. And so we're gonna have to then actually defend, right, That architecture it won't defend itself, um, which is going to be in large part fronted by the private sector. But to some degree supported, aided, and vetted by the government. And at the end of the day, we need to figure out how to use all the instruments of power that we have. The private sector has many, um, but the government has um, several more. And we have to use those in a way that they integrate and kind of co-join such that we have a collaboration back to the original premise that I offered, which is how do we make it such that an adversary in this space needs to be all of us to be one of us? Um, that's not about simply connecting the dots of what we know, Sometimes we can't each or or one um, kind of form a a whole thought ourselves with the information we have. We have to actually collaborate at the lowest possible level such that the insights that one party has can be uh, aligned and reconciled with the insights that another party has and that together they form a dot, they form an insight that then makes a difference because adversaries have been crowdsourcing us. We might see part of it on one side of a barrier, part of it on another side of the barrier, It's only when we take those walls down, respecting privacy, respecting kind of proprietary interest. It's only when we take those walls down that we see it for what it is, a threat that holds us at risk
0: in common. Key to improving federal cybersecurity is implementing the zero trust mandate in Biden's cyber executive order. Maury Haber, chief information security officer at Beyond Trust, said the federal security community needs more education around zero trust.
2: So when we consider zero trust architectures we first have to make sure people are educated very well on zero trust. We use the NIST 800-207 document as a guideline and it is an easy read if you haven't looked at it to basically form the architectural guidelines that everyone should be looking at. The reason being is that when you consider what we're dealing with today in terms of work from home and the dissolving perimeter and the transition to more mobile workforces etc. We need a methodology to say, look, I can actually architect solutions that can be used anywhere by anyone, but have the security that I need to assure that it is the right person with the right asset using those systems. And that can be everything from a remote system to a remote application to someone using it from their mobile devices. And this is more than just remote access. This is everything in terms of concepts of like least privilege, because you want to make sure that when someone is using those applications, they can't get those administrative rights or excessive privileges that are known to be attack vectors that potentially could harm our government resources. So we apply a lot of the best practices in terms of vulnerability management, security, least privilege, and we architect it in a way to do so. We have to remember Zero Trust is not a product. It's not something that you buy off the shelf. It is a methodology and architecture that is well documented to use existing solutions or new solutions in a way that we're not dependent on firewalls and network controls to provide the security. Once we do that, we can do the continuous monitoring. We can assure access. And my mission as a vendor is to help get that product out there. But as a CISO for my own company, make sure I'm using it, too, because just like many private sector and government agencies, My employees are still working from home in large capacity, and I have to find a way for them to be productive and do their work well.
0: Brian Conrad, acting director of FedRAMP, said he's working with CISA to support zero-trust implementation at federal agencies. But federal agencies should keep in mind that cybersecurity, especially cloud security, is a team sport we approach
3: cloud security as a team sport. It's it's collaborative, you know, everybody has their part to play. Um, and so, you know, we look at that understanding also that the the commercial entities that we that we deal with, uh, you know, cloud service providers and 3PAOs have a lot of talent in their organizations and and it's a multifaceted issue. So, you know, what a 3PAO sees and what a uh, cloud service provider sees uh, may, Will enhance our ability to have a holistic uh, view of, of 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 issues and problems. It's a shared security model. Okay, um, there are things that when when an agency uses a you know comes and grabs a a FedRAMP package, um, there are certain things that are that are known, right, and certain things that are that are uh, addressed in that package. But it's also you know reinforcing the the requirement that you know, the agencies are, or, or the user, let's say, um, has certain responsibilities with that too, because, you know, if, if that, and a big one is, is uh, configurations, as, as John mentioned, right? Um, we, we need to make sure that, you know, the customer responsibilities are clear. So when those, when those cloud services are implemented within an organization, that they are secured properly.
0: John Sims, Senior Technical Advisor in the Office of the CTO at CISA, stressed basic cyber hygiene. He said the federal cyber community needs to understand how data and networks communicate in order to deploy zero trust effectively.
4: The one thing that strikes me is that, um, especially when we're talking about cloud and some of the uh, newer technologies uh, that we use in our environments, we have the opportunity to address some very basic uh configurations in terms of like you know how we turn things on uh and, and standardize the not only the protections but the visibility and when we look at the opportunities especially with some of the larger uh cost security providers being able to as brian said you know look at how we can use it uh these features as guardrails is very important um right now uh, I would say we have a limited set of guardrails. We need to maximize that uh, in terms of how we, uh, you know, look at some of the uh, configurations in the in the n365 AWS as well as in, in in the Google platforms. Because I think that there's a there's a, a learning curve associated with uh, with using these environments, and and I know that over the last couple of years we've we made significant strides. But a lot of work that we've done at the program level at CISA, in particular with the Trusted Internet Connections Program, uh, we've, we've partnered with, with Microsoft in particular to, to look at how we could employ zero trust in an Azure environment, uh, utilizing the TIC uh, 3.0 uh, you know, reference architecture and security capabilities. So we need to do more of that. Um, we definitely need to partner with some of the agencies that are, that are really leading the curve Uh, and how they're using cloud. And I think that the more effectively we can do that, uh, uh, the more quickly we can short-circuit this problem and and solve some serious problems.
0: Of course, part of the reasoning for deploying Zero Trust is to help protect against the deluge of ransomware attacks. Matt Swenson, chief of the Cybercrime Unit at Homeland Security Investigations, offered a bleak assessment of the state of ransomware from a law enforcement perspective.
5: The ransomware actors and their methodologies and the way that they um, function in an organized capacity is getting much more sophisticated. So you know, we think of ransomware, the vast majority of ransomware groups, they essentially function like organized criminal networks. Um, some of the variant groups, we see you know, as many as 80 or more actors um, all working in conjunction, they've become very specialized in their skill set. So whether you have uh, you know, the malware developers, um, the money mules, the people who gain network access, the people who function as help desk operators to negotiate payment, and all that type of stuff, they are very, very specialized, and they each have an individualized skill set, and they're all working together. So we've seen a huge boom, a number of factors. Um, you know, the ease of use of cryptocurrency is one uh, ransomware as a service and their affiliate networks. So, you know, they're willing to bring people in to their ransomware groups and give them a cut of the payment per their, the way that they um, spread the word in these affiliate networks. So. That's why we're seeing more attacks, more sophisticated attacks, more successful attacks is that, you know, they've really got their methodology down pat now. What differentiates the ransomware crews now from what you would see a decade ago is their ability to move laterally. Um, So, you know, if you look at the most major ransomware attacks that have occurred, basic cyber hygiene could have prevented the vast majority of them. Um, so killing their ability to move laterally, all the stuff that Lance and Mike have been talking about, heavy network segmentation, network security monitoring, zero trust models, multi-factor authentication, um, all those types of things. And then I think coming at it from the perspective of, if not when, you know, hey, we're going to get hit. So then what do we do about it? Do we have, you know, off-network backups? If we practice uh, the restoration of data? You know, I've seen networks where, yeah, they have, you know, off storage backups and they've never once practiced and then they start the process and it doesn't go according to plan by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and understanding that business continuity model of, hey, if we do have to restore from backup, what does an outage look like? You know, does it take us two weeks, three weeks in order to restore? Um And I think that ransomware actors realize that they understand how painful two or three weeks of of downtime can be, and they adjust the ransom accordingly, knowing that, hey, we're more likely just to pay it and be done with it than to go through a rigorous two, three week of downtime, which can cost the organization, you know, a painful, absorbent amount of money. Um, So All the stuff that both Mike and Lance are talking about, I think you start from the basic cyber hygiene, work your way up. And as you start to prevent just those basic things and get, you know, more and more secure, I think you do end up preventing the vast majority
4: of of these types of attacks.
0: There's one small upside to major cyber incidents like solar winds and colonial pipeline. At NASA, Associate CIO for Cybersecurity and Privacy, Mike Witt said these incidents are driving systemic change so we put
6: i would say we've put a lot of uh protective um uh, capabilities in place uh especially around our email because uh, that's that is probably the most uh, uh specific threat vector that's being uh, uh attacked these days uh with ransomware uh, we've went very aggressive uh, on um, what um, email we allow to come into our network, but we've also done the vice versa. We're also aggressive on what uh, email we actually uh, allow out of our network from that standpoint. Um, we've also um, uh, basically done a lot of education uh, with our users because again, if still, if something slips in, it really comes down to the users to recognize, uh, you know, not to click on something from that perspective or whatever. Uh, but, again, we've got technology that actually sandboxes. Uh, I'll call it all the user clicks and everything like that. But we are running um, uh, very active, uh, I'll call it red teaming against our network at all the time. That includes, I get, I'll throw our users into that red teaming. Um, and uh, we, we are doing phishing. We're doing vishing. We're doing whaling. We're basically throwing everything at our users text messages, the whole thing uh, to uh, get their attention ar- around really not clicking on things or whatever Again I would say you know it's bad, right but really probably the biggest thing that helped us from a from an education standpoint is when things with like colonial pipelines start. You know, those unfortunate incidents happen that makes it real for our users. I'll call it in the real world, right? It's not just uh, I'm working for a government agency and I've got to do annual, you know, cybersecurity training once a year, et cetera, or whatever. Or they, you know, we maybe participate in this crazy phishing exercises or whatever. So when things happen in the real world and they end up uh, on, you know, live television or they're impacted. Um, I think as Matthew said, you know, at the gas pump, et cetera, trying to to find gas uh, to to get to work and stuff, right? This actually helps drive and reinforce what we're trying to do, and that's actually paid off for us. Uh, The solar winds was a perfect example. We were impacted with solar winds uh, here at NASA. Um, uh, But uh, uh, what really came about of it, because, again, that incident was so heavily advertised uh, within the media around that and the results of it or whatever, uh, I'm, I'm now got, um, I'll call constituents here on our mission sides or whatever that's coming to me, going, "Hey, your job's tough. We get it now. How can we help you help us?" And you know, though, that's a change of conversation that's that's happened over the last five years since I've been here. Uh, and so that's really what's kind of helped on us is it, it's gotten real for our users.
0: At DoD, the Defense Digital Service is working to improve cyber policy so as to enhance cyber resiliency. Lance Cleghorn, a digital services expert with DDS, discussed some of the ways DDS is helping protect DoD's critical infrastructure.
7: We believe that that improving the overall cyber resiliency of these devices and products um, is probably where we need to spend a lot of effort, uh, specifically working with vendors to assess and harden their devices prior to release would be a huge win. Um, if you think about like uh, the initial vector for Kaseya being like a, you know sort of a zero-day CVE within their products, like it, it's an interesting concept to think that we could combat that kind of initial vector um, and kill chain this much earlier in the process. Um, so, uh, you know, really like getting it, like what are our what is our recommendation? Like how do we get to doing that? Um, our Hack the Pentagon initiative over at DDS is where we focused on bringing crowdsourced uh, and boutique penetration testing Um, So recently we focused a lot in the ICS and OT parts of DoD networks. Uh, We've conducted a handful of these engagements, and I think we've seen some really exciting results. Um, One of the things we're we're in the process of right now is sort of like shaping DoD's future as it comes to like IT and OCS devices. Um, And these sort of assessments give us the window into like what works good and what doesn't work so great. Um, and sort of helps us pivot towards that direction. Um, But it's not to say like we've been immune within DOD to to sort of ransomware, but I think really the big benefit we get is there's just like a lot of uh, diversity or like heterogeneous nature to DOD networks. Like Navy doesn't look the same as Air Force, doesn't look the same as Army, even though we all sort of follow the same uh, general guidelines. So uh, really when, when we are impacted by these kind of events, they tend to be smaller scale or more isolated. Um, but, you know, really focusing in on sort of like the benefits that our models and, and sort of tried and true protections already give us has been the, the focus that we've reiterated for, for ransomware. Like if you think about like limiting user permission so that the ransomware can't actually, uh, you know, encrypt, encrypt network storage or backing up network storage and not allowing access to the backups to, you know, any, anything other than service accounts. Right. Um, so really, I think that's been our focus is that we've seen a lot of the, the ransomware has been like drive by downloads and, and sort of like not extremely targeted um, when it comes to DoD, so that's really been our I think, our saving grace.
0: Another growing cyber concern is the security of IoT devices. Vincent Sredapan, Chief of the Cyber Quality Service Management Office at CISA, said IoT devices can be a national security risk.
8: The applications that we do have, right, uh, for us today are, are quite massive and they'll be even more so going forward. Um, I will say, though, that, you know, the concerns, right, so the fact that, you know, even if the fallback is onto, um, if, if the fallback is to a mobile device or, or, or other networks, um, you have to think about where, uh, with this IoT device, you know, how is it maintained? How is it connected? Um, I'll say you you have plenty of IoT devices. What happens if, you know, you think, oh, I do cyber hygiene, I can figure out how to patch my, my refrigerator, right? That's awesome. But But what happens if that manufacturer no longer exists? Then what do you do? right? There's, there's, quite, there's quite a lot of aspects in which you have to think about um, the, the, the state, right? You can follow technical guidance and other aspects, but think about, well, do I segment my network differently? Um, there are aspects of uh, national security that IoT really makes a difference in our world because it has physical impacts, right? And I, and I do think that, you know, just like it can benefit if, if cyber, you know, or malicious activities do occur, it could also have that negative effect.
0: Katarina Magus program manager for IoT cybersecurity at NIST, said it's important to create national standards for IoT security. The cybersecurity challenge isn't really just here within the U.S. We could try to improve the state of IoT and improve the state of IoT devices in the U.S., but if we don't really approach this on a global scale, we're not going to be able to solve the problem. Um, And by doing that in an international standard space, it really encourages others and other nations to kind of adopt and and meet this international standard. So, um, you know, we've taken our work and we have uh, provided it as contributions and we are actively engaged in a lot of these uh, international standards. Our national security event only grazed the tip of the cyber iceberg. As national security concerns around federal IT multiply, check out our website at governmentciomedia.com for the latest news and insight. Subscribe to CyberCast for deep dives into today's cyber issues. If there's a cyber story or trend you'd love to hear more about, drop me a line at kate.macri at gcio.com. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Thank you for listening. Cybercast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.